Hello everyone and welcome to a very special Motorsport Hall of Fame Awards podcast. I'm Ed Foster and I'm joined by Editor-at-Large Simon Aaron and Andy Cowell from Mercedes HPP. Now every year at Motorsport we have a Hall of Fame and we induct great racing names into it. The likes of Mario Andretti, Michael Schumacher, Tatsuya Nuvolari, Valentino Rossi. But this year we had three categories for you to vote on. Formula One, sports cars and an inspiration award to discover the winners of these do please go to the website which is motorsportmagazine.com this year we've also awarded a very special prize that's been voted for by the motorsport team it's given to a person or a team that has made an indelible mark on motor racing and who may not have got the recognition that they deserve our magazine and website prides itself on bringing you the stories behind the headlines so it gives me great pleasure to present this award, the Motorsports Hall of Fame Editor's Choice Award to Andy Cowell on behalf of the Mercedes AMG HPP team. A massive congratulations. Thank you very much. It's, um, it's a great honor and um, it's great to receive this on behalf of everybody here at um, Mercedes AMG HPP. I hope you can find space on your shelves because coming into this this Bricksworth, I would call it an office. It's not. It's, it's, it's actually a sort of a town. Um, the the walls are lined with trophies, such as been the last six years. So we'll come on to that, and we're going to talk a little bit about your past. We've got some readers' questions, but before we go anywhere, I just wanted to play you a a message from Valtteri um, on what he said about HPP. So working with HPP, obviously. Um, it's a very close relationship between Brackley and Bricksworth and you know we are one team we don't have just one factory we have two factories and uh, I think the communication always between those two factories has been excellent um, we're always pushing forward you know as a, as a one team together so I think the communication has been one of the key things um, with problem solving and Finding the gains in performance and you know finding the faults and fixing them has been has been a key. So you're going to be going to the pit straight, and uh, I think uh, you could do one or two donuts there. So just get them in nice and early. You're going to be pulling up at the start finish line. I also want to say a big big thank you to everyone at HPP. Just what a fantastic job! I'm so grateful the engine did all these races. No if no faults. Big, big thank you, guys. Keep pushing. So we heard there from, from Valtteri and from Lewis. Valtteri talking about the collaboration between, between here and, and Brackley, and then Lewis complimenting you on the reliability. And you mentioned just before we started recording, he completed every single lap of racing this year. Yeah, um, get, getting a car to be reliable is a, a huge challenge, both on the chassis side and on the power unit side. And um, this year, um, Lewis has managed to do every single race lap, which is um, um, all credit to him um, and everybody that puts the chassis together and everybody that's put the power unit together. So it's uh, um, it was a bit of a nerve-wracking last race, to be honest, because we'd got a, a, a clean slate up to that point. Um, and everybody that was working on his car knew that the record was intact at that point. And um, yeah, it was a, a big cheer at the end as he crossed the line. And um, and then and then we watched him do the donuts. And um, with, you look with at permission. the temperature. Yeah, with with permission. It had been mentioned in the briefing in the morning, so he knew what to do. Yeah, just nail it. Um, and um, yeah, uh, it was great to see it um, uh, drive in to its um, its position on the grid and, and turn off. Season done. Amongst the wider world, when the hybrid Formula One era began, there was a lot of scepticism that you know there were going to be four cars finishing the first race and all the rest of it. But 
I know that the, it's exceptional for Lewis to have finished every racing lap this season, but generally, since the start of 2014, you've had... It's not been perfect, of course, but, I mean, your reliability record since then has been pretty exceptional, hasn't it? Um, it's uh, it's not been perfect. There's yeah, been yeah, uh, yeah. there's been some um, some hiccups. Uh, certainly, Lewis in 2016 had the uh, had the uh, the rougher end of it compared with compared with this year. Um, but we we all know here. Uh, I mean, uh, people have been working here in in Brixworth for over three decades, trying to make the most powerful and the most reliable engine and then hybrid system when Kurs came in and now and now power unit and we all know that you, you need to be fast um, but you've got to finish because you don't get any points until you finish and it's both you know finishing 11th every single race is a little bit boring um, starting the race in in first place but you know only doing half the race is um, is also boring um, you've got to get both together and that's what um, that's what everybody here works so hard on is that is the performance edge but also the reliability so that the um, so that the drivers can trust the power unit that they're not constantly apprehensive about the power unit um, and at the circuit we can concentrate more on on chassis setup rather than having to dial the power unit in on the subject of reliability, you know, there's you obviously have the sort of the party mode for you know for qualifying. You can turn it up. How over a season? How long a time can you kind of? Is it ten percent of the time out of a power unit's life that you can use that mode, or is it not as easy to define as that? Uh, it, it's it's not so easy to define. We we have a we have a qualifying mode, and we have a a, a regular race mode, and then we have a race plus. You know, race plus came after race because it was a little bit more than than race, um, and also we have a, a race save mode, um, which Lewis is exceptionally good at turning into. Um, as soon as he knows his race is in a stable position, he's the one that turns into the race save mode, and he's he's brilliant at just looking after the hardware. Often gives us a few heart attacks. We 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 still think the race is on, and he's turning it down. Um, Qualifying mode available for every important lap in qualifying uh, the start of the race and then some key points. Um, but then what we've ended up doing is expanding our race plus mode such that we use the qualifying aspect um, at the start of the straight where it's the most important. So these, these modes, they've, they've evolved ever since 2014. 2014 was a nerve-wracking time where we didn't know whether we would be able to complete the first race, let alone the championship. We, we, we went track testing, super nervous. Um, we got eight cars that we were powering at that point. So that volume as well as the new challenge. Um, and the modes were very simple then and they've evolved over time. And it's always the case that if a power unit is surviving well with the current um, duty cycle, the current level of mode allowance, um, the next power unit prove out, you say, well, can we stick another 20 kilometres of qualifying mode per event on into the prove out? And, and then you let the engine tell you, you know, you, you, you run enough data samples in the factory, um, mimicking the car as best as possible. You look at the results, you put a safety margin on and you, and you go racing with that, with, that, with that allowance. From an engineering perspective, has the hybrid era been the most kind of stressful in, in term, in, in term, in term, just in t because it's a relatively. I mean, the 2.4 V8s were all right. They were new when they first came out, but that kind of that 
it was the, the technology was the same as what had gone before, just in a different volume. But this is a, this was a completely different thing. So has has that sort of been a more challenging, more stressful environment? I, I think anything that's new is challenging and stressful, but equally is is exciting. Um, I think all engineers like doing new things. Um, they like working on new technologies. Um, and I think the, the, the extra bonus we've had out of this new set of regulations is that um, there is a fuel flow limit. So there's an energy flow limit. And it's, it's the group of engineers that can create the power unit that gives you the most useful energy to propel the car. And from an engineer, there's a, certain, there's a certain happiness about working on a machine that's converting more energy in a, in a, in a useful way. Um, but the challenge of two high-power, high-speed electric machines, two inverters to go with it, a big battery pack to manage both of those, the control to look after not just the fueling and the, um, uh, the spark timing in the engine, and the variable inlet, but also the scheduling of the MGUK and the H um, and variable inlet systems on the compressor. Managing all of that together was um, a significant challenge over where we were in 2013. Um, but, the, but the group of people here, you know, the group of people that are sat behind me and, and, and beneath me in this, in this building, they love a challenge. Um, and they love that challenge of, um, taking on new things for not starting projects knowing that they'll hit the targets. They're like stretch targets, um, both technically and timing-wise. Um, Lucky that. And, and, <laughs> but, and, and that's racing, isn't it? Or, or, or any competitive company, any successful competitive company. Um, and we're also fortunate that the history of this company is such that we've got a, a large amount of vertical integration. So... Uh, for the engineers that are coming up with concepts, the guys in the performance area, um, the manufacturing hall is just 100 metres away, and so the manufacturing engineers um, can sit and have lunch with the design engineers, they can have regular meetings. And so the ideas come from around the whole factory, they happen to be released by a, uh, by a product engineer releasing drawings and CAD models, but the but those ideas are captured around the business and wrapped into that drawing and then people miraculously turn it into, into reality of a, of, of a component. Um, gets built, it gets tested and we learn. And we, uh, uh, we have an attitude of every experiment teaches you something as long as you get a conclusion. Um, whether it makes the car go quicker or slower, as long as you get a conclusion, it's, it's a good experiment to do. Um, in all development, if it doesn't make the car quicker, then you turn around and go the other way, and invariably that direction then makes the car go quicker. There's no, there's no real, real magic. You, you try things and you learn, and then you move forward. At what stage during the 2014 season did you begin to believe that, yeah, we have, we have cracked this? Um, I, t t 2014 was one of those um, emotionally strange years um, the the, the lead-in in 2013 was exceptionally intense for everybody in this business. Um, partway through 2013, we, we asked everybody to work more hours because we couldn't see how 
any of the eight cars would finish in Melbourne and so we painted this horrible image of all eight cars being parked by the side of the track and, and us and the Mercedes brand being humiliated um, and everybody uh, dug deep and worked some incredible hours and uh, with some amazing ingenuity to solve issues right down to the last moment as we were the very first engine that we passed off for Melbourne blew up the whole gear drive exploded yeah so the very first engine that we passed off blew up crank gear came off and there was a group of us here for 24 hours trying to work out what to do with the next engines clearly you couldn't pass off the next engine because a gear drive destroys lots of hardware yeah. that we just didn't have replacements for um and so we went to Melbourne really not knowing how we were going to get on. So seeing lots of cars up at the front. Um, uh, but then having the heartbreaking moment of Lewis at the front, but a misfire, simply because a rubber tube had split and the spark had jumped across something as trivial as a, as a rubber tube splitting and causing a, a DNF. Um, the emotions of being on the podium with the constructors trophy because uh, Nico Nico won uh, we got a one two three um, and then we just won lots and lots of races and our reliability was shocking but it wasn't exposed on the track so that safety margin <laughs> that safety margin was about right um, the torment of then going to um, Canada and the ERS module uh, overheated um, Canada is one of the toughest races for the ERS module in terms of K-duty. Um, and so then suffering a DNF, um, breakfast on the Monday morning when I got home and my young son said, Daddy, why did you let Red Bull win? <laughs> Tell you what, there's no one, no one more cutting, I don't think, than, yeah. than your son and, saying and, that. And, and I wasn't the only one experiencing that in the factory. Yeah, you know, everybody in the factory experienced that. Well, your son was going around talking to all of them. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> I don't think it's that close knit. But you know, everybody was like, "Oh no, what we're doing?" And um, and in the airport uh, in Montreal on the way back, I bumped into Pat Fry, um, uh, who I knew from working with him at, at McLaren, and uh, he said, "He said, thank goodness you didn't win because otherwise you stood a chance of winning every single race this year and then beating the McLaren 15 out of 16, which he was associated mm. with." Um, so, so 14 was a roller coaster of emotions all the way to the last race where um, um, it was double points. But I, remember, I remember it going down to the last race with, with Lewis and, um, and Nico. We had a problem with the Ears cooling pump. And Nico saying, please let me finish the race. We wanted to DNF the car, but he says, no, please let me finish. It's all the way from you know the first race engine going to melbourne blowing up to the last few laps of melbourne was was full of emotion and um at the time all i was experiencing was the painful stuff and you don't get any time to enjoy the the, the happy stuff um it's only at the end of the year when you go and you know with with toto to go and collect a constructors trophy where you go wow we did it um, and I love seeing the engine down in reception, the, t the 2014 championship winning engine, because you see all the patches that, that grew on the cooling of the Earth module through the year when we let Red Bull win. <laughs> I, I want to come back to the hybrid era in a second, but I'd, just to kind of rewind a little bit, you sort of started in motorsport by helping your dad sprint and hill climb. 
you've come a very sort of long way since then. And I think when you went to Cosworth, you'd, uh, you, went, you did the, um, the graduate scheme and you went around every single department, but, but basically finished and then stayed in the engine department. Was it, has it always been engines or now power units? Or was it the engineering of motorsport that excited you in general? Uh, it's the engineering of, of motorsport in, in general that, that excites me. It's, um, it's creating things. Um, and I think like many of the people here, you, um, you know, there are significant people around you that uh, engineering rubs off onto you. Um, for me, it was, you know, being in the garage helping my dad build sprint and hill climb cars. And that's what we did at the, uh, the weekend. And that's what I ended up doing when I was old enough and my dad was kind enough to share his car um, with me and I broke it a few times as well, sorry dad um, and um, uh, but, but you get ed- education can be um, not particularly inspiring and so it's good to have something that inspires you I think today things like Formula Student do a great job for inspiring children's children on what you can do with maths and physics how you can apply it. Um, I think the UK motorsport industry provides a great, great opportunity for engineers um, going through education, going through university. Um, but then I think I'm, I'm like lots of the people here. Um, I've enjoyed a, a good graduate scheme. We, we run the same style of graduate scheme here. So we take lots of graduates on, we take lots of apprentices on, and we want them to move around so that they get to experience lots of different areas of the business. Find the bit of the business that really excites you, you know, puts a fire in your belly, um, matches up with your skills, matches up with the needs of the business, and then, you, and then your career moves on. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fun industry. I, I class myself as super lucky, to be honest. I, you know, I, I come here and it's, it's my hobby. Um, what were you and your dad hill climbing, and, and did you experiment you know much what? with I'd, it? I'd, I knew that Simon really w- would want to, want to know about the sort of well, the niche details. Midget, there might be an MG Midget story, so I don't know. It, it wasn't. So the the, the, the very first um, uh, sprint and hill climb car my father put together was a Terrapin, um, yeah. so the Alan yeah. Staniforth yeah. um, um, high speed low cost book and and plans uh, with a nine nine eight Cooper engine in the back, uh, which was. Um, a, a, a great experience you know when you've got father building a, a car like that in the garage from you know from nothing um, and then moved on to um, Jedi single seaters with motorbike engines in significantly better power to weight ratio um, and I've still got a Jedi Mark 5 the only Mark 5 um, sat in my garage but um, it's been sat there for the last eight years but I mean as you as you were sort of just starting out then did you did you tinker around much just out of just pure experimentation with your inner engineer, or yeah. did your dad let you? No, no, he <laughs> he, he very definitely let me, and um, uh, that would probably cause some of the the, the bad runs, <laughs> 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 some of the failed runs, <laughs> um, and and certainly you know uh, university holidays and so on. I'd be in the garage tinkering on my own and he'd come in and go what have you done <laughs> <laughs> but um but no, it's a fu- it's a fun way of learning isn't it you know doing motorsport yourself where you have an idea you you put it together and you go racing and you have success or failure it's a it's a good way of learning fast forwarding to 2009 it was the, the debut of curs which you were heading up the project for how 
how daunting was it? Because you've obviously been, you've been involved in, in engines for, for many, many years before the energy recovery systems came along. Did you, when you first heard about the rule change and the curves, did you go and talk to any other industries? Was there anyone you could talk to? Or was it literally a case of kind of trial and error to start with? Um, the, the regulations came out um, the tail end of 2006, or the clarity was there. And so from 2007, um, at Ola Kalanius was the managing director here at, at that time. Um, and uh, he, he made the decision that um, HPP, rather than McLaren, should do the, the Kerr system. You, he could clearly see it fitted with the powertrain rather than the chassis. Um, and uh, we used several um, consultants and industry partners to, to help us learn. Um, and uh, we investigated flywheels with CVTs, um, electric machines with either lithium iron or ultra capacitors for storage. Um, and we were, we were fortunate that we, we took all of those to, to demonstrators so that you could really learn about the, the technology and, and doing that testing here, so you know, testing a flywheel and CVT here, testing uh, battery test facilities were, were put in place and motor test facilities. And that was, that was Ola's vision that, that, you know, electric machines, high power electric machines connected to the engine was the way forward for, uh, for Mercedes and for Daimler. And it would be great for HPP to start um, embedding that technology here. Um, for, for me and lots of the engineers that had just worked on um, high-speed, naturally aspirated engines, um, it, it's new and it's exciting. Um, and it's a bit frightening and there's stuff to learn about with, with high voltage and creepage and clearance and so on. Um, but it's, uh, you know, y you go back to your your O-level physics, your A-level physics. Um, yes, you've got it to go back on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and um, the degree I did was, um, the first two years was common um, uh, coursework between mechanical engineering, um, electrical civil engineering. Um, and so I haven't yet used the bridge design theory that, I've, um, that, that I was taught <laughs> at the time, but the, the electrical engineering, it was, it was very interesting. And there's uh, to apply that in curves. Um, and electrical flow is just the same as uh, liquid flow down a, down a pipe in terms of the way you think about it and the way you look after it. Um, and we were, we were very lucky that we could attract some really, really good um, electrical and electronic engineers, and they've uh, they've they've done a superb job here in terms of embedding the understanding, putting the the Lego bricks together, as they refer to it, of of the control circuitry and and so on, and that's just grown and grown, and that that's that that decision by Ola right back in two thousand and seven is is absolutely what helped us perform well in, in 2014 because curves was sort of a practice for us and having it embedded here meant that it wasn't it wasn't so daunting and the, and the control architecture could all be managed here um, so you know the controls group really were looking after every single bit of the of the power unit is are the limits on on dyno testing electrical testing or in Formula one at the moment because obviously you know, Formula One's so restricted in many ways. Um, or can you literally have an engine on a dyno 24-7? Uh, there, no, yeah, there are no um, restrictions at the moment um, for, 
2021 there will be dyno restrictions on on v6 running and full earth system running um so over the next 12 13 months we'll we'll adapt to that we'll ramp down to those numbers um and i think that's uh it, it's analogous to what's been done in the wind tunnel world um and i think it makes you think before you do and i think that's a that's a healthy thing for all of us, <laughs> um, especially especially creative engineers, where we uh, we often tend to not think thoroughly enough. We don't do all the what ifs. Um, so uh, so we're all looking forward to that. We know we'll have to change a little bit, but we think it'll be healthier. Now I'd, we've got lots of readers' questions, so I'd, I really must um, actually read some out. Uh, I've been known in the past for. Uh, getting sort of so involved in the conversation, I then forget to ask them and get told off. Um, so, uh, well, there's, there's the one here sort of talking about the similar kind of thing from Paul uh, via Twitter, asking how confident you are in terms of getting a handle on the new regulations. Because there, there were rumours that the MG, MGUH wasn't going to be used, but I think it is now. So the new regulations from your side are pretty much the same. Is that a fair comment? Largely the same. Um, so progressively we'll do more races, but we've, uh, I hope we stick with the same number of engines and air systems. So stick with the same three engines, two air systems. Um, and then for 2021, the fuel changes. So um, currently there's about 5% bio content in the fuel, but the type of bio isn't regulated. For 2021, it will be 10% bio, but it's uh, bioethanol, and it must come from sustainable um, sources, so not from food stock, etc. Um, and then the FIA are keen for that fuel regulation to grow and grow and grow, so ultimately we end up with 100% net zero fuel. Um, the time frame for that, we're working that out <laughs> at the moment. Um, we need to be careful that we don't um, change the fuel, which then demands a drastic change on the power unit. We're trying to we're trying to introduce these things in a in a progressive, um, considered manner, so that all the budgets are looked after as well as the as well as the competitive aspect of the sport. The, I was, I was going to ask f fuel. Can you just give sort of readers and me, who perhaps is not so expert on, you know, the the nuances of fuel. Pump fuel for a road car is very, very different to what, well, in some respects, to what you put into a Formula One car. But in many respects, it's actually very similar. But the Petronas and the fuel supplies in Formula One are doing almost as much development work in terms of what they're putting into your engine. Um, could you just give us an insight into what, you know, how different is it and how much work is going on just, just on fuel alone, forgetting you know, the whole power unit? I mean, the, the, the Formula One regulations are formulated around it being a, um, uh, an unleaded gasoline, just the same as um, you'd use in a road car. Um, but as with everything in Formula One, we optimise within the regulations to suit um, the other components that are in our car. So the fuel is optimised to go with the power unit. Um, and the power unit is optimised to go in the car in terms of heat rejection and size and volume. Um, so there's, uh, we're fortunate we've had the relationship with, with Petronas since 2010. And so the relationship was in place before the new regulations came in for the V6 turbo engine. Um, turbocharged engine, very high boost level. Um, and you need to be the master of knock. You need to avoid knock inside the engine so that the combustion is controlled. Um, 
having a great fuel partner um, as, as Petronas are um, really helps you develop a combustion system with the fuel um, to optimise the, the heat release that then helps generate useful work rather than unuseful work. Um, so it's a, it's a case of every single aspect of the fuel regulations. We, uh, we use uh, simulation and then experimentation on both our single cylinder engine and on our multi-cylinder engine just to, uh, just to optimise the, the geometry of the engine with the um, chemical properties of the, of the fuel. Is, is it certainly towards the end of the uh, 2.4 V8 era when there was a development freeze, one of the ways you could find extra power was more efficient, more combustible fuels. Are, is that sort of power race still going on with the fuel companies or is it, is it less so now? Um, the, the power race is still going on with the fuel companies, fuel and, and the lubricants as well. Um, at the moment, there are no performance freezes in the um, in the power unit world, um, but we've just completed our sixth um, championship, um, and so with you know, uh, eighteen months of development before we went racing and six years, it's um, it, it's a long time for the engineers to to, to optimise, and so the gains end up smaller. Um, but you end up looking in more areas. You, you start looking in areas where you assume there wouldn't be a gain. Um, and often, because you've not gone hunting there before, you do find reasonable size gains. So, um, so every, uh, uh, every update, the power unit gets better in terms of performance and reliability. Um, and, and, you know, Petronas help us with the reliability. The, the fuel can help you with reliability. If the, if the combustion is more controlled, the peak cylinder pressures... Um, can be reduced for the same amount of power generation and it's those peak cylinder pressures that try and lift the cylinder head off the crankcase mm. which has all sorts of bad side effects. <laughs> um, I think you've actually uh, answered Pratik's question here about talking about are there any more gains to be made in the hybrid era and um, you were just talking about that. There's one from Chris here which um, is quite interesting. He's, he says sound or lack thereof. How do you feel do you feel sympathy for the fans given the muted notes of the current PUs? I think um, I think in 2014 um, none of our engines were particularly well tuned um, we were running a, a lightweight um, exhaust system um, and so not equal length uh, primaries um, I think now everybody's got a, a, a very well tuned engine all the lengths are a nice equal size um, and I think the sound is um, uh, the sound is pleasant. The the, the volume isn't high, but um, it it's still it's still pretty noisy. Um, and I think uh, I think now all the other supporting championships have got turbocharged engines, and you you go to a Formula One race and it's it it, it everybody's running a turbocharged engine, um, and they all sound fairly similar. Um, and um, I think we're seeing more families go to the circuit. I think previously with the screaming V8s and the screaming V10s, there's no way a child would go anywhere near the circuit. You wouldn't, you wouldn't in, in, inflict that on your, on your child. Um, and there's lots of us that have got um, damaged hearing from working in, um, in the industry in that time, and I, so therefore I think it's a, it, it's a good progression. There's one here from, from Paul um, that I wanted to ask anyway, actually. That it's, 
he's asking about the technologies that you start in racing that go that go into road cars. It's it's more and more a hot topic. I mean, I know Formula One has been carbon neutral since 2000, I think. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of focus on well, you guys are driving around and around in circles, burning fuel. How much use is Formula One in the in the everyday world? Um, I, I think uh, I. I understand the criticism fully you know we start and finish in the same place um, but it's a it's a development platform uh, HPP um, has always had the head of R&D as its chairman um, two of our board members um, are from the um, the engineering side of Mercedes-Benz research and development um, currently one of them is responsible for internal combustion engine development going forward. The other one's responsible for e-drive going forward. And so the chairman and those two guys um, learn about everything that's going on here, um, which benefits uh, the knowledge that's going into the road car world of, of Mercedes-Benz, but also benefits us with our racing programs. Um, there's several times when we've had reliability issues where we've phoned a friend in Stuttgart and said we can't understand this at the moment can you send a couple of experts over and and they do solve the problem very swiftly for us um, so that 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 technology transfer flow um, happens all the time and um, there are you know light weighting reduced friction um, improved combustion uh, efficiency all of those aspects are, are flowing um, into the road car world, uh, efficient um, electric machines, um, efficient inverters. So the technology in our inverter is of great interest in the road car world. Um, and high voltage batteries. In, in Formula One, we're allowed to run up to 1,000 volts. Um, ever since um, 2009, we've run a 800 volt battery. Um, the higher the voltage, the lower the current for the same power level, and it's the current that kills you in terms of the losses. Um, so uh, that learning is being transferred across into the, into the road car world, more so on the hybrid side now on the electric drive side than on the internal combustion engine side. But I think it's, a lot of it is the methods and the, and the, and the, uh, the can-do attitude. Um, I think sometimes it's good to be able to just, you know, some guys come from Stuttgart and come here and spend a day looking around and there's a sudden, oh yeah, why don't we, why don't we do it like that? Or, or, or just looking at things spurs an idea. Um, so I think having that, 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 that close relationship because of the board membership and the, and the open access, um, that just helps with ideas and methods and, um, and, and attitude, both directions. You know, we've learned so much from having that connection to, to Stuttgart's R&D facility. The, um, talking about sort of the, the cleanliness, as it were, your 2017 power unit uh, can achieved a conversion efficiency of more than 50% on the dyno, which was the most efficient racing engine ever made. Just tell me exactly what that means. Um... <laughs> So, <laughs> I, I, no, I'm, no. Not, I'm not joking. I, you know, I'm not an engineer. I don't have to ask these questions. You haven't so, even got a physics O level, have you? Well, no, I haven't. So, if, if, you've, got, um, uh, if, you've, got, uh, if you've got fuel, unleaded fuel, um, if you burn that fuel, then the total amount of heat release 
sets your 100% mark. Yeah, so all that energy that comes out from the combustion, that sets your 100% mark. Now, we convert that bonfire, over 50% of that bonfire, we convert into useful work that will propel the car along. The other 50%, that goes to the atmosphere, either through the tailpipe or through the radiators. Now, a typical road car, it's only about 30%. So for that, for that normal 100% bonfire, only 30% will propel the car along, 70% goes to the atmosphere. I tried to think what my 1991 Fiat Panda's like. No wonder it's so slow. So the, That's so amazing. The, so so the, the V8 engines in 2013, it was about 29% of the, of the energy from the bonfire went to pushing the car along. With, with such a small percentage, or such a big percentage loss, what, I mean, obviously, the, it's a, it's a, might be a stupid question, but why was there not more focus on this efficiency before now, because you know, for all the work that goes into creating more and more power and thousand brake horsepower, thousand five hundred in qualifying mode, th if they just sidelined a bit of that effort into trying to make things more thermally efficient, then that would have worked. I guess you're about to say this is a very stupid question. <laughs> no, no, it's not a stupid question at all. I mean, the the, um, the FIA had the thought of going to a fuel flow rate and a fixed quantity of fuel for the race. Um, as early as sort of 2007, 2008, and they envisaged going racing with that style of regulation in, in 2011. Um, we wrote regulations for 2013 introduction, but that was on a four-cylinder engine, which was deemed um, uh, not fashionable enough. And so we changed to a, a V6. All the other numbers stayed the same um, and delayed to 2014. So. So the FIA have always had this idea of, of introducing a, uh, a fuel flow rate, an energy flow rate um, formula. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a big change, wasn't it, for 14? But, um, but I think it is very well established now as it is the correct way to go. We should keep developing it. Um, with time, we should make sure that the fuel is as close to net CO2 as possible, so we're not you know, so we're not taking um, carbon that's been captured millions of years ago out of the planet. We're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and, and converting that into a into a, a liquid fuel, a liquid gasoline. Um, and the more we can do to to use the waste energy on the car, you know, a turbocharger is taking waste energy out of the exhaust stream instead of the hot gases going straight out into the atmosphere. You're taking that energy to drive a turbine wheel. Um, the, the, the MG UK is taking the kinetic energy, so the, the mass and the velocity of the car, that, that chunk of energy, and, and putting it in the battery to use again. Um, and the more we can do that, and the, you know, when you look on the, the, in the road car world, um, uh, brakes should disappear. We should all trust electric machines. Yeah. <laughs> you clearly haven't known the Fiat. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Let's get some more readers' questions. We have got loads of them. Um, there's one here from Hamza, uh, who's asking whether or not you can match Ferrari's power unit performance in 2020. Um, I, I wanted to ask about Ferrari this year because you, you know, I think it was Mark Hughes who did a very interesting piece on Motorsports website about the advantage that dominant teams have had in Formula One throughout the years. So Williams, you know, the Mansell peak. Um, PK era, they were roughly 1.5 seconds, I think, 
a lap faster than everyone else. But you guys have been 0.3, and actually it hasn't been complete dominance. But it does, it feels to me this year that certainly Ferrari has definitely caught up, if not overtaken a bit. Is that a very difficult thing to watch when you know, you've, you've been so dominant since 2014? Um, yes, you know, we, um, uh, our, our primary aim is to make the fastest race car, um, but all the areas that, that, that go to make up a fast race car, whether it's the power unit, whether it's the aerodynamics, whether it's the vehicle dynamics, the uh, tire engineers, whether it's the pit stop crew, whether it's the tactician, uh, we all want to win our own little championship against against the others. Um, uh, Ferrari have Ferrari did a stunning job of reacting in 2014. So they reacted very early in terms of uh, the fact they were a long way down and they've been chasing hard with, with you know, uh, huge determination. Um, this year there have been races where, where we've beaten them quite convincingly and, and vice versa. Every time you're beaten, it hurts. And if it doesn't hurt, you should probably retire if you're in a, <laughs> if you're in a competitive industry. Um, so yeah, it hurts like hell. Um, it's always tough uh, being in the factory at the start of the week. We do a we do a race debrief every Monday after a Grand Prix. Uh, we do it at 11:30 with a half a glass of champagne if we've won, uh, and wear our green race winner t-shirts. Um, or we do it at five o'clock if we've if we've not won. Um, and those five o'clock ones are, are painful and they hurt. But we um, we say what we've seen. We say what the data says and we say what we're working on to close that gap or or extend our advantage if we're fortunate to be in that position um, and every week we write a, a, a team brief note to everybody in the business to say how it's going in detail and um, I don't pull any punches in that. Okay we've got, we've got another question here. Um, I think from Hosni is his name. Um, his name is in Arabic to the left, but I'm afraid my Arabic is not actually that good. Um, he's saying, congratulations, uh, Mr. Carl, for the great work. He obviously doesn't know about the, the award, um, so he's just saying in general. It, he said, I heard that Mercedes PU is not number one anymore. If it is true, is it linked to the architecture you chose at the beginning, which has fewer possibilities of development? Um, I think... Uh uh, in, in terms of out-and-out out qualifying performance, then Ferrari this year has shown that their car is, um, is better. Um, but you don't get points on a, on a Saturday, you get points on a, on a Sunday um, in terms of finishing the race. Um, and you, you know, we work very closely with the, with the team at, at Brackley to make sure that the, the power unit contributes to the, to the overall car performance. Um, I don't think the architecture is holding us back. Um, every year we have a very open look at the way the, the power unit should be laid out. Um, a lot of it is, is determined by the, by the regulations in terms of where you can put the turbocharger, either it's at the, towards the front, sort of split across the crankcase like we have it, or, or in the back, in the, in the transmission. Um, typically from an aerodynamic perspective you you want to follow the the shadow of the of the driver's helmet and the and the crash structures as, as around that um, so I think um, 
if the Ferrari qualifying performance is all down to crank power, then we just need to work harder and we just need to find more crank power for um, for those single laps in qualifying. Um, but what we mustn't do, do is destroy the performance of the car on um, on race day. Um, I think the the aerodynamicists and the vehicle dynamics guys have done a great job of, of making sure that the car is is very kind to its tyres and can can stretch well and and can be raced hard throughout the uh, the race, and the and the total car package in terms of reliability I think is a, is a key aspect as well as well as the tactics of the race and the management of the drivers. From from an engineering perspective, are you slightly disappointed that the regulations in 2021 are so similar? Because you, you were saying earlier in the conversation how exciting it is to have you know this enormous challenge on your hands when you first came into the hybrid. Era. Um, as an engineer, yeah, I think um, uh, you know, as a as an engineer that likes to be creative, likes new challenges, um, likes to be um, in the mire of a new challenge, yeah, and fighting his way out. Then, um, then I wish there was more change. Um, but I think uh, Formula One is moving in absolutely the right direction, and I think the the V six and Ers. Uh, power unit that we introduced in 14 is now absolutely the right power unit um, and I think it's good that the four manufacturers just iterate more and more and more we've seen um, you know Honda are the best improvers this year they're the they, they, they're way ahead of Ferrari in terms of development rate um, and so uh, let, let, let's have a close battle with the same set of regulations you know I'm, I'm up for that and then let's come up with a new set of regulations for maybe 2026, um, which is a, a perhaps a bit more of a step away from what we've got now. I was going to ask you about that because in the short term, given the level of improvement Honda has shown in 2019, where do you see the bigger threat as coming from Red Bull Honda or from, Fer from Ferrari? I, I think they're both formidable. Um, they've both got um, uh, owners that are determined to win. Um, not just attend, um, and uh, Red Bull uh, can make championship winning cars. Um, Max Verstappen is um, quite formidable, handy. yeah, quite a handy chap, isn't he? Um, and Honda have got, um, uh, you know, their their investment in what they're doing is is huge, um, and their determination is huge, and that's uh, that's that's showing on track. Um, and you can see that the structure and um, sound decision making being done, um, and I think that's yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be exciting. And you know, I I love an engineering challenge, but I enjoy the challenge on the track more. You know, the 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 thrill of a a, a full race weekend and twenty one races over the over the championship from March through to December now. Um, uh, if we can have six cars going wheel to wheel at every single race and there's some racing incidents that, that end up deciding it, well that's a, it's a cracking championship. Now we've got about five minutes left and I've, I was going to fire some sort of quick fire questions at you. Uh, the Formula E side of things, obviously it's new, Mercedes is, na is now involved. Have you been involved in that in any way? Um, and and what, what have you been doing to sort of help them with your, you know? So that there's there's a team of people that um, uh, formerly worked on Formula One and on the uh, uh, the AMG One hypercar that are now uh, have over the last 18 months created the powertrain that um, 
uh, Mercedes-Benz Formula E are using. So the inverter, DC-DC converter, uh, all the control aspect and the electric machine and the, and the transmission. Um, so they've um, taken F1 technology, taken the road car technology, pulled it all together and, and created a, uh, a, a, a good package. How, how niche is Formula E in terms of learning how to go quickly or you know, build a quick car compared to Formula One? Because ultimately they're two single-seaters with, with four wheels um, and you know, the similar technology in both, but it is quite a different beast to tackle, isn't it? It's um, uh, it, it's it's got all the same elements. Um, uh, instead of a uh, 110 kilos of unleaded gasoline as an energy source, um, it's got a um, standard supply battery with a fixed amount of energy kilowatt hours that you can that you can take out of that battery over race distance. Um, in Formula One, you don't have to do any fuel saving at all. The 110 kilos that we've now got is super generous so you don't need to do any energy saving. You've got 100% of what you need for a full race. But you'll still do some energy saving because you don't obviously fuel the car. So if, if you want to start light, you can do. But, but your consideration is typically not that you don't have enough energy. In Formula E, you've only got 70% of the energy that you'd ideally like, 70 to 75% of the energy you'd ideally like. And so for the drivers it is a case of how best to spend that energy to finish the race as quickly as possible, but equally not let your opponent pass or to overtake your opponent. So it's, um, you know, there's a pot of energy. There's, there's an abundance in F1. There's, there's, a, there's a limited resource in, in Formula E. Um, and there's a lot more standard parts in, in Formula E. Um, but then it's down to the operational excellence of the, of, of the team and the way they react to yellows and attack zones and, and so on. So, uh, so a little bit more strategy through the race. The, I just wanted to talk briefly about the diesels at Le Mans. So obviously from an engineering perspective, you've, you know, you've been sort of very much Formula One. Um, but I suppose you must have watched that era with, you know, with, with a lot of interest. Yeah, I think uh, the work that uh, Audi did, Ulrich Boretsky did, was, uh, was fascinating. Um, the regulations in, in Le Mans are um, energy-based again, um, with various um, uh, numbers based on the fuel type that you use. Um, and Audi seized the opportunity when the regulations were about right, and it fitted in with their uh, road car direction of the time. Um, don't think we'll see any more diesels <laughs> racing. <though. laughs> it's been somewhat turned on its head, um, that, that fuel. Uh, I wanted to ask, what do you think has been your greatest eureka moment in your career? That might have been when you were spannering your dad's sprint car, or it might have been something in the hybrid era, or, you know, in terms of, or an idea, not necessarily you, but your team. Has, has there been something specific that you look back on and think, God, that was, what a brilliant idea that was? Um, I think... Uh in, in terms of technologies, I, I used to work on the pneumatic system when I was at, at Cosworth, and there was a, a couple of breakthrough points there that um, that were particularly enjoyable to be to, to, to be in the muck and bullets of and, and moving things on. And we moved the pneumatic system from um, running at thirteen and a half thousand RPM to then getting up to twenty thousand RPM, 
that was that was a that was a fun journey to be in the muck and bullets of. Um, for me now today, it's the it's the thrill of seeing everybody working together. It's um it's the organisational side. It's trying to um, set tough targets, but put people in in roles that suit their personality and their skill set. So it's a it's a role that they enjoy doing, um, and their skills are strong. And um, the needs of HPP and Mercedes in motorsport is there. Um, and trying to remove all the impediments so that they can they can thrive, um, and that gives me the biggest joy now. Just seeing that that team of people, the individuals, and then the team of people work together. Well, that's the that's the thrill now. Looking back over the history of internal combustion, is there one particular engine you wish you designed, or are you quite happy with your CV as it stands? <laughs> um, there's, there's a I've got this fascination with the. Uh, the Merlin engine, you know, there's there's something quite um, yeah. emotive, answer, quite quite emotive about the Merlin, um, the sound, um, the story. Um, uh, there's there's a book called um, Not Much of an Engineer, which is about Sir Stanley Hooker, who was probably the first mathematician to go into Rolls Royce and help the development of the the compressor. Um, that's probably the most enjoyable book that I've read in the last couple of decades. Um, so that's a that's a fascinating period of um, uh, uh, of engineering history. You know, a horrible period of time for the world in terms of what was going on, but in terms of engineering, um, tenacity and determination. Um, and I think you know, mo motorsport is a is this fast-paced laboratory. Um, clearly, we're not. Um, <laughs> We are not at war, but we're um, we're competing against each other, and there's uh, there's a huge amount of determination to to win, um, but to shake um, our opponent's hand if we um, uh, if they win and we're second, and shake the hand, walk away, learn, um, and come back stronger than the next race. And we're going to have to wrap it up there because I know you're very busy, but I, I think at some point in the future, you're going to have to get a Merlin into your hill climb car. <laughs> and that can be your en engineering um, hurdle anybody, when, you're, when you're retired. If anybody knows where there is one <laughs> that's for sale, please It'll let me a great, know. Great feature in motorsport. <laughs> a huge congratulations to you and the team here at AMG HPP um, on the Editor's Choice Award. Very well deserved um, and an amazing era of dominance so far where... It, where you haven't had a huge advantage. Um, so congratulations to all of you. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you mm -hmm. to Alan for recording this. We'll be back next month with another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you so much for watching, and thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.